in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Dustin Melbarnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies and knights to the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today are my good friends and co-hosts from right here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Mr. Chad Robinson. How are you doing, sir? I am well today. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. And one of the my longtime friends and longtime co-hosts here from Spokane, Washington, Mr. Brian Fry. How are you doing, sir? Hello, hello. Doing well. All right. Now, I'm excited to get into today's movie, but before we do, let's say if you were in a jail cell and you had a poster on your wall, and uh, this is the lady of the decade, who's on your wall, Chad? I think I'm picking Betty White. I know where you're going, but I want Betty White on my wall. She she makes me happy. What decade are you in? All of them. All of them. Okay. All right. <laughs> and uh, Brian, how about you, man? I think I'm going to have to go live Tyler on this one. Okay. So you're in the 90s? Yes. Okay. I answered this question as if I were in there today. So... I, just I think Chastain. I'd still take Liv Tyler. Okay. Nope. There's nothing wrong with that then. And then, then uh, Jessica Chastain would be on my wall today. So the uh, what's the last movie you saw, Chad? I saw Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. I am a big Sam Raimi fan. This was a big Sam Raimi movie, so I had a lot of fun. But people that aren't Sam Raimi fans are having very mixed reactions to this movie. Yeah, yeah. I loved it. Good, 100%. Good. Yeah. I almost Brian, texted you? you and said, I, it, literally the last movie I saw, too. So, I mean, it just came out last night. So, yeah. Right. Oh, so same for you. Wow, we've never had that yeah. happen on the show before. Yeah, it was. Uh, I really enjoyed it. There is a part that I will not bring up that I lost my mind on, mm-hmm. and I'm still riding that high. Well,. Uh, I'm sorry to break the uh, tic-tac-toe on three in a row on this one. I did not see that last. The last movie I saw was Lawless from 2012. So I I had, because I had just recently seen uh, Confessions of Tammy Faye with Jessica Chastain, which just brought her up a second ago, I went back and I watched Lawless uh, from 2012, which is a movie I missed from, from her catalog. And I thought this was great acting, loaded cast. I didn't enjoy the journey or I didn't like the destination as much as I enjoyed the journey, but they did a great job. I liked the world they were in. just wasn't quite as fulfilling. So I understand how it didn't get awarded for for what it had, but uh, there's definitely some good stuff there and some solid acting performances all around by a good cast. So still worth seeing. All right. Haven't heard of it, but may check it out. Yeah. Renegade Bootleggers. Yep. So another period piece is our movie today. Is Brian, what is our movie today? Uh, We are going to be doing Shawshank Redemption, Stephen King novel, Frank Darabont film. All right. This movie stars 
Tim Robbins, Morgan Freeman, Bob Gunton, William Sadler, Clancy Brown, and Gil Bellows. The release year is 1994. Budgets for $25 million. It makes $28.3 million, so it makes a profit. It comes in at 51st on the box office this year. Not a huge box office smash. It comes in behind Drop Zone and ahead of Guarding Tess. Its number one movie that year is Forrest Gump. And Forrest Gump and it go head-to-head in the Oscars. And uh, we'll see in here in a second how that turned out. IMDb gives... Yeah, I was going to say. IMDb gives a the uh, Shawshank Redemption a 9.3. Rotten Tomatoes critics give Shawshank Redemption a 91%, and the audience score gives it a 98%, so the audience loves it. And the awards go seven Academy Award nominations, and this was the year of Forrest Gump, and it lost all of these. But it was nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor, Adapted Screenplay, Cinematography, Film Editing, Sound, and Original Score. It just walked away empty-handed, so it was the Susan Lucci of the 94 Oscars season. And uh, it happened at the Golden Globes again. Uh, two nominations for Best Performing by an Actor in a Motion Picture for Morgan Freeman. Best Screenplay for Darabont. But again, Forrest Gump steals the thunder. And AFI's Top 100 Movies in 2007, when they revisited, ranked this the number 72 movie of all time. And the 100 Cheers, or Most Inspiring Movies by AFI, ranked this at number 23. So the initial grossings of this was only $18 million. It didn't actually cover the cost of production. It was with another $10 million because of its seven Oscar nominations that brought people back out to a second wave in the Oscar season. Uh, we don't see this all the time, but it's kind of interesting how this movie picks up more life as it goes on. And furthermore, it more or less finds more life in the TV world because after the film gained popularity, Ted Turner sold the television rights uh, to TNT and uh, his own, for his own network, and uh, for much lower than the normal, more normal rates for a film. So therefore, they could show it. It was inexpensive to show. So if you were around in the 90s and O's, this movie was on TV a lot, particularly on TNT. And this is where it seems to have resonated with so many people. Now, Brian, had you seen Charles Shank Redemption before? Yes, I had. Uh, and But it had been a really long time. Uh, I do remember this movie being on television a lot. Uh, it is one of the few movies that we've done that I don't own. So yeah, it just it's not something that I've seen recently, but it is something I've seen before. So what was your reaction to it then, and how has it changed coming back to it? Oh, I mean, it's a pretty heavy movie. So uh, I would say then it was like, you know, a deeper, heavier escape from Alcatraz. I mean, that was like another, you know, Clint, Clint Eastwood classic. So, I mean, you know, if you want that, that style of movie, uh, it's definitely a go-to for that like prison style, prison break movie, but it, but it didn't really have the rewatchability that escape had. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, Chad, had you seen Shawshank Redemption before? I hadn't. And I'm aware I'm on a movie podcast and I'm covering this movie. We This was my dealer's choice. And it was to force the issue for myself. I own the movie. I've owned it for a long time. Just never gotten the chance. Saw it on TV a couple of times. Never watched it, though, because it was usually starting late. So this was a first-time entry for me. And... How is it upon a first-time viewer? Because uh, this is interesting to go so far without having seen someone who has seen it. So what was your what was your take coming to it now? 
yeah, I've seen this movie rated as high as the number one movie of all time. So expectations were, I was trying to guard them a little bit, but yeah, I, Oh Brother Where Art Thou is another prison type film. It's a little different than this one, but I, I think I have a thing now for prison films. I, I enjoyed this one greatly. I'm, I'm glad I picked it for myself. So give myself a pat on the back. Yeah. And I watched this one well before I knew this was a Stephen King movie. I went for a long time before someone's like, yeah, Stephen King wrote the Shawshank Redemption. I was like, what? Really? And so uh, I loved this movie, though, right off the bat. I went to Alcatraz in sixth grade with my parents on vacation, took the tour. And something about the history of that really, really stuck with me. And even though I was too young when this movie came out, I got to it a little bit later on TV, my mom and dad both said, yeah, it's a good movie. You should see it. And so I was... Oh, I was just going to say, it's not even Stephen King's only prison movie. It's not, no. right. Um, but uh, I I came to it and I was I was just in cap... I was just captivated by it. I loved the period piece. I like the storytelling component to it. And I have returned to it frequently. I don't always go for a more heavy drama type content because but because this movie has a hopeful tone to it and because of where this journey goes on uh, the destination in this case is very rewarding so i just talked about a movie that good journey but not didn't take me to the right place this movie is the opposite It, it, it was very rewarding and i enjoy coming back to it so when they said it was on the afi cheers number 23 for uplifting movies i really I really see that in this, and it's uh, that inspiring type movie does it for me. So, uh, good marks. I've come back to it regularly. And thank you, Ted Turner, for putting this in front of me. Gosh, I've returned to it. I don't go much more than two years without getting into at least part of it, so I know it well. But for those of you at home who haven't seen it, which Chad was in your club until now, but you're going to want to see this movie. Come back and watch after this because we are about to spoil this movie. What happens when two modern film fans go back and rewatch all the old classic films from yesteryear to see if they hold up? You get the Classic Film Jerks podcast. Find the Classic Film Jerks podcast on all the major platforms. Welcome to the Flashback Flicks Retro Movie Podcast. I'm Ricky. I'm Grayson. And every week we review a movie from the past and reflect on things we miss, things we loved, and things we want to see again. Yeah, because we believe any movie worth watching is worth watching again. So if you like films, friendship, and a lot of callbacks, I mean, just so many callbacks, then subscribe on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever RSS feeds go for like-minded, movie-loving individuals like you. All right, we're back, and this is your final warning. There will be spoilers that lie ahead. So, Chad, for those who haven't seen The Shawshank Redemption since 1994... Why don't you refresh people's memory? Yeah. Banker Andy Dufresne is wrongfully convicted of the murder of his wife and her lover, and he's sentenced to life in the gloomy jailhouse of Shawshank. He befriends another lifer by the name of Red, who is able to get things from the outside for the prisoners. Andy requests a rock hammer and eventually a poster of Rita Hayworth for his cell. He begins to ingratiate himself to the guards by providing them with financial advice as well as with the prisoners by getting them easier jobs than the occasional beer. A new prisoner named Tommy claims to know the man who killed Andy's wife and is willing to testify, but the crooked warden has Tommy killed to protect his embezzlement scheme. 
Andy dreams of escaping and never loses hope, but seems broken by two months in solitary confinement. Red worries Andy may commit suicide. Instead, they find Andy has tunneled out of his cell using the rock hammer over a period of 20 years and covers the hole with his posters. Andy had told Red of his dream life once he was out of Shawshank and encourages Red to meet him once Red is paroled. Red gives an amazing speech to the parole board where he tells them he no longer cares what they think, and you know what? They actually parole him in anyway. He finds a box that Andy described to him long ago and makes his way to Mexico, joining Andy on the beach as Andy is fixing up a broken down boat. Well done, well done. So, we talked about this for a minute ago. This is a Stephen King movie and a Stephen King book. Fry, this is not what you normally think of from Stephen King, is it? He's got a lot of gems like this. You know, he's he's obviously better known for stuff like It and Carrie and, you know, big Hallmark horror movies. He's got a lot of really thought-provoking work, too. Yeah, yeah. Now, Chad, you're, you are a horror guy, so therefore you're going to have been more inundated in his horror type things. What's it like coming to a dramatic type of movie for Stephen King? Yeah, I I think Stephen King is a very talented writer. The biggest criticism of Stephen King has always been he doesn't know how to, how to finish well. This was a novella. It was largely expanded by people like Frank Darabont. They added the extra scene in the end, the boat scene with Andy and Red. So, you know what? Taking the framework of a Stephen King novel, and Darabont is an expert of this because I enjoyed his version of The Mist better than Stephen King's ending, I think it's a great idea. I I really do. And you see that often. We had it, that discussion with uh, The Shining, where his endings are often changed. I, I actually like Stephen King's Shining ending much better. Hmm. <laughs> I I don't like the movie The Shining, so we'll just end it there. Hmm. But back to Shawshank Redemption. Uh, this this movie is just as I alluded to before. It's an inspiring movie of a movie of hope. I think it's interesting that this movie makes you kind of question: Is Andy innocent or not? There's something about him that seems so rattled, though, that you kind of believe that he is. He, tell, he tells you right off the bat, I'm innocent, I didn't do it. And they kind of make, they keep you a little bit in that ambiguous territory by saying like, oh, we all are here. You're going to fit right in, is what Red tells him. And it's not until later in the movie when Tommy comes into the prison system and says, oh my gosh, I know somebody told me a story that sounds exactly like this. And he killed, you know, a major golfer and... And somebody, an, adult, an adulterating, you know, adulterating wife of somebody, some big banker, and you're that banker. Oh, my gosh. And that's when you realize, oh, my, like, all this horrible stuff that Andy's been through was not even on him. And the endurance of what it takes as a person to make it through this when you weren't even supposed to be there, uh, you know, to quote the movie Clerks, <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> it's uh, it's quite amazing. And it it's one of those things where something so captivating about being put into this world that's so different from the world that we live in where you're free of the bars. But it's kind of interesting to go into that prison world and to think what that would do to you as a human. We see what its effect is on Red and on on um, Brooks, the older man, and how it starts to change you and how it takes your life away from you. Morgan Freeman speaks about 
how they sentence you to life and that's exactly what they take from you. And it's not just time, it's also your sense of self and how you live your life. And again, they talk about hope being a dangerous thing. And Andy has that hope. They can't break him. And some birds just aren't meant to be caged. And that character of Andy is so inspiring. You can apply that to so many parts of your life with your own drudgery of your own everyday tasks with your own work. It's just, uh, it, to me, it's just one of those things that resonates so well. I mean, Brian, take it. <laughs> I think that this is one of those movies that evokes an emotional response with just about everyone. I don't think that you can watch this movie and not feel for the characters. And I think that's one of the things that makes it so resoundingly powerful across a wide demographic. Yeah, I, I'm not someone that went in. I never watched the Oz TV series. I've heard a lot about it. But man, this movie, it introduces you to the misery of prison pretty much right off the bat. And it gets worse. Like the beatings start immediately. Then the delousing where they're just marched naked. There's It leads right into the sisters and the several years of rape and assault that Andy's... Which, by the way if you watch this on tnt they take the edge off of that a little bit uh i remember when i watched the full movie i was like oh this is more than a one-time deal this is a bad deal this is this is persistently happening oh no <laughs> yeah yeah i mean that was completely awful but even smaller scenes that made me realize how little personal freedom or privacy when they're going through andy's cell and just they're not carefully placing his things off the shelf they are just ransacking it throwing everything just hurling books off shelves flipping his bed unscrewing everything except the poster for whatever reason yeah well he he got special privileges as you alluded to in your plot summary i think that's one of those things andy is in a hard world where people don't treat each other very well. They might laugh at each, at other people's expenses and they bet with each other. And there's, there's this thick as thieves kind of vibe against, you know, we hate the prison guards kind of thing amongst the inmates. However, Andy brings in genuine acts of decency. And that's something that this environment isn't really very familiar with. And people connect to Andy. At first, Red, you know, didn't think much of him right away, but he's he was really won over by him. And so... It's not just that he stuck his neck out for his workers through his financial advice. You know, he almost got thrown off a roof by talking back to the guard, but he used it to get beers for the inmates who were re-roofing a hot tar roof. He got them out of the jail into the roof to even be doing it anyway. So he's doing these little things, not necessarily to be popular, not to play off of uh, what's there, but just common acts of decency that he, he saw men who, while incarcerated, were human beings and they needed to be treated with some dignity and decency too. And it's kind of odd. It's contrasted by the warden who says, I believe in the Bible and discipline. And, you know, he's, he, he pushes that Bible, but he doesn't walk that line very well. He doesn't show very much compassion. It's not done in, in a way that says you can do better. It's very much a punishing kind of attitude there. And Andy contrasts that antagonist character of the warden so well and it's interesting to see how much brightness one guy could bring through building a library bringing in music into the doing the guards taxes and stuff 
actually making everybody's life better who he touches. And it's like as he's gone to prison and they've taken his life from him, he just steps it up and is an even better person. And that's so cool. And like how this in this place where it could totally break you, like you mentioned earlier, you're worried he's going to commit suicide. So there's something really cool to see how those small acts of kindness go and make big differences in the people around you. This movie shows that. Oh, yeah. 100% agree. Yeah, even with the guard about to throw him off the roof, like when I'm first watching it, I'm thinking, okay, well, that's a solid threat, but he was never going to do that. But then you see what happens to Tommy. They just call him out in the yard and shoot him dead right on the spot after he says he would testify. So that that was likely a very real threat. I I took the beating of they they just uh, the fat guy in the beginning. They killed him. They, yeah, beat they him beat to him, death. They beat him to death. And I kind of wrote that off as okay, this is a terrible accident. But no, these are just terrible, terrible people who have no concern whatsoever for the people they're in charge of. Yeah, it's, there's nothing like getting the Kurgan from Highlander to be uh, your, your uh, prison, uh, you know, your prison warden. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, yeah, he, uh, he was vicious. I mean, even when Andy gets on their good side, which by the way, these are good people to be on their good side because, you know, what finally puts an end to the, you know, kind of serial rapings that he has to go through for lack of a better word is they beat Andy so badly, you know, within dangerous, you know, like, within his life and then the guards came after him because he had been doing their taxes he was useful to them and uh they did let andy have his posters they did let andy have more in his cell and he did get special treatment because he had proven himself to be useful with his mind and how he could move money around so you know he gets on the warden's good side i don't know that it's necessarily to do that he escapes free of that world like he doesn't really choose to leave and when he does leave, until the warden fails and covers up to exonerate him, when there's actual evidence that can exonerate him, he kills his ticket out of there, he covers it up, and he realizes he's dealing with not only a financially corrupt man, but a morally bankrupt human being. So uh, the warden, we know we don't like him early on, but man, quite a villain when you really get down into what he does here. Both, both, the, both the ward, uh, is that the right word? Yeah, uh, yeah, head of guards. Yeah, head of, yeah, both the head of guards and the and the warden. So, yeah, Captain Hadley. Yeah, yeah, he was he was vicious. Well, there's a lot of interesting characters as we go in here, and so Stephen King does such a good job of writing these characters. And Darren Bond, as you alluded to, Chad, adds to a novella, which is an interesting thing. Normally, a screenplay writer has to the task to pare things down, but in this case, they have to elaborate. And wow, he does it so good. I mean, did you uh, do you have some of the differences that you happen to have seen in the novella versus what's happening in the movie, uh, Brian? Uh, no, I actually haven't read this one. It was well after the movie came out that I, you know, found out it was a book, and just just never got around to it. But I, from what my understanding is, it's it, there. There's some fairly drastic differences. Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the things is with Red. So Red is not an African-American in the novella. He is a white Irishman. And they keep that joke where Red says, maybe it's because I'm Irish as far as why they call you Red. (laughs) 
he was an Irishman with red hair in the novella. But the important part that I think they cut in the movie that would have made Red a far less sympathetic character is in the novella, Red is in jail because he murdered his wife and child in a rage after losing a card game. And just, that's awful. And I think we would have a hard time connecting with Morgan Freeman, who's just this old... Allegedly. Old soul. Well, he... He says he's guilty. He says he's guilty. He so. No, yeah. I know. I know. I just... <laughs> yeah, he, he's the only guilty man in the jail. So, yeah, it's like, you're going to parole the dude that murdered his family over a game of cards? Please don't do that. You're right. You're right. But I think to some degree that this movie is trying to show you that these are human beings and, and their worst moments. Uh, the word redemption is in the title of the movie. So uh, I think that's a big part of that character as well. So, yeah, it's interesting to see all of these different characters and how they engage with Andy and how they're changed through Andy. Andy makes those around him better. And uh, but to your point, though, Chad, there's some other major changes that the book makes just because they've filled it out. Tommy isn't killed and covered up. He's just sent to another prison. And therefore, the exoneration that Andy needs is covered up through a less nefarious sort of way. So I like them making the warden character more evil in this case uh hadley is not as one character but a series of characters in the books they just kind of put him together in one and another major change is the two men do not meet on the beach it's left ambiguous in the book and darren bont was gonna hold true to that and just wanted to end on a blue sky at the end freeman walking onto the beach and you weren't sure if he'd make it there or not and the studio said you know Let's just shoot it and shoot what you think is cool. But also let's let's show the two men uniting on the beach. And it's your movie. You're the director. You have final cut, which is actually a hard thing for a first time director to get. Very generous. And Darren Bont decided to go with this ending, this catharsis that the studio was saying that the people would want. And I think it's the right call because without that, I'm not sure this movie holds up over time. So it it is a important move and a hundred percent the opposite of how he handles the mist <laughs> at, the, at the end of that movie as you were alluding to earlier we covered that movie ages ago one of our first ones we did cover but that's a king and darren bont uh effort as well but i think that ending is important because uh, it it's that hope pays off they they do reunite that's really cool yeah the last spoken word in this movie is the word hope so I, I would agree I, if it were just a blue sky or a sandy beach. I don't know. I, I kind of needed that closure for me. It, it felt good. That's for sure. I mean, you know, this movie is two hours and 45 minutes long. It's long, but it's doesn't feel long. And that has to just do with the storytelling thing. Fry, doesn't Morgan Freeman narrating just like make everything in the whole world smooth as butter? I, I feel like I, I didn't do any research on this, so I could be woefully wrong, but I swear this is the movie that launched his voice. Like, Morgan Freeman, yep. yeah, I mean, he, he existed as an entity prior to this film. I'm not trying to make that point. I'm just saying that in terms of narration, this is, the if, if you considered Morgan Freeman's voice to be a separate entity, this is the movie that launched that career. Yeah, it was his first time narrating a movie, so yeah, it definitely jump-started his popularity. Absolutely. I think he became a household name 
as the well this movie had to grow into household name status because it wasn't just right. a box office smash but as this movie did so too did morgan freeman's status as an actor carrying it with it so as i mentioned it's morgan freeman's favorite film that he did and it's the one that you know just his his vocal sensibility or personality through his speech patterns are just so great and it's a really good opportunity I don't know why more movies actually don't do narrators. Now I think about it, you can convey an awful lot of information and it kind of starts to feel a little bit book-like when you have a narrator that does does some of this work for you. And uh, it somehow it really draws me in. Yeah, I, I think it became such a thing in the 90s to 2000s because this got popular that it almost became trite and we're trying to get away from it. We might get back to it. But Morgan Freeman narrating things. I mean, Family Guy took a shot at it, too. In a way, uh, it went up against Forrest Gump that year, and that's a storytelling of a man looking back on his own life narrating. So 94 was a big year for narrating. There you go. Now, speaking of Forrest Gump, Tom Hanks, Jeff Bridges, Kevin Costner, Tom Cruise, Matthew Broderick, Nicolas Cage, Johnny Depp, Charlie Sheen, Gene Hackman, and Robert Duvall, Clint Eastwood, Paul Newman, all are considerations for Andy Dufresne. Tom Hanks actually was at the top of the list, and he turned it down, and he committed to go with Forrest Gump, which stole all the Oscars that year, as I mentioned. So probably a good choice for him. He would be good, though. Cage would be terrible. But (laughs) this is just, it's interesting how Tim Robbins was not, at all the top of their pecking order to lead off this movie he's not necessarily a list actor but tim robbins this is the role of a lifetime for him isn't it i think fry's somewhere out there cursing the world because kevin costner loved the script but he was in the middle of filming water world good choice good choice yeah that's that that's a rough that's a rough uh rough it had all that money. It. How could it miss? <laughs> it's like... I'm, I'm totally fine, though, with Tim Robbins in this role. I think that he did a, a fantastic job as like kind of the quiet giant. You know, in the book, he's actually a small, small guy. It's funny. They had to they kind of that kind of shifts the power dynamics to have literally Tim Robbins always be the, the tallest guy in the room. But he does a good job of playing. I wouldn't say nebbish necessarily, but, uh, you know, He's getting beat up by smaller people than him, and uh, somehow it doesn't feel wrong. And that's a lot. That goes a lot of that goes to how he portrays himself. So I mean, he's getting attacked by three and four guys. So that they that did get help. like two dudes that are like giant, like ripped, like Iron Man type dudes to like hold him back. So they 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 did their they did their work. Bob Gunton's actually a pretty tall dude too, the warden. Yeah. So um, everybody's tall in this movie. So no shorties. <laughs> no shorties tim robbins though talks about how often strangers just walk up to him and it says he's really proud of this movie uh, he's talked to morgan freeman about this and it's just a special thing that they got to be a part of it's more profound than that to so many people and people will come up and say that it's completely shifted the way they think about their lives or brought them out of depression and it's understood a deeper truth within themselves it's a pretty cool thing to be involved with tim robbins says and when people are telling you on an almost daily basis that this is the favorite film that you've been in as you walk around town and go different places. It, it, it's a very fulfilling thing and a cool bucket list, as he calls it, to check off, uh, to check off your bucket list. Uh, you know, you don't have to do that thing in your own life that it gives you a lot of security that you've done something so big and big like that. So uh, it is cool to have that under your belt. And it does mean that much to people 
I don't think most movies do resonate so strongly with such a large audience. It's probably true. Yeah, I mean, like I've I've said, you mentioned in 2007 it was in the 70s, but I've seen this movie ranked as highly as number one as best movies of all time. So it's clearly had staying power and resonance with the general population that few movies do. That would be an awesome thing to be a part of. I I think probably the coolest thing in the world to would be to be a part of like the princess bride or something that's just evergreen yeah right absolutely i mean so it's nice to know as an actor you have that freedom to go do whatever you want knowing that you've accomplished so much behind you already so and and daniel radcliffe (laughs) yeah exactly yeah i mean you can do whatever you want to you're still harry potter forever for sure same thing. I mean, it was not a given that Morgan Freeman was going to be their guy. Again, they looked at Clint Eastwood, Harrison Ford, Paul Newman, Gene Hackman, Robert Redford, Robert Duvall. These were considerations for Red. So these were heavier hitters and bigger names at the time. But Morgan Freeman, despite not being a redheaded Irishman, comes out of perhaps not the first pick on the pile. And he gets the role with just his authoritative presence and demeanor and his deep voice. And uh, it's just something about how he came in. And it's funny, you tell me that, I can't picture anybody else in his role. No, no, not at all. Those are good names, too. Like, I like all of those actors. Like, you know, when I'm saying, like, I'll pick you over Paul Newman, you're doing it right. Yeah. Yeah, Clint Eastwood would be good here. That would be good. And uh, Clancy Brown received several offers from real-life corrections officers to work with him to portray Captain Headley and to make him more realistic. But he turned them all down because he wanted it to be an evil character and didn't want to misrepresent real corrections officers. So uh, so we went with the Kurgan. Fry, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, what are some takeaways you have from this amazing cast? Well, I'd say that it'd probably be either this or Glory that really launched uh, Morgan Freeman for me as, as a household name. Uh, Tim Robbins still stayed in, in a certain level of obscurity despite movies like Bull Durham. I think there was, I'm trying to remember the name of it, there was a suspense movie I had seen with him in it too. But again, you know, he plays such a soft-spoken guy. He's not an exclamation point in this, even though he's a, he's a you know, the lead guy. As far as the prison staff, or prison staff and everybody kind of around it, there's a lot of like, I don't want to call it B-list because it's too insulting, but you know, there's, there are household names that you're like, Oh, it's that guy. And, and I thought they did a really good job of putting the right, that guys into this film. They did. They did. It's interesting. James Cromwell was considered for the role of the warden, but Bob Gunton gets it later. Cromwell's the warden and another Frank Darabont, Stephen King collaboration for the green mile made just five years later. And as I mentioned before, Tom Hanks was a very leading candidate to be in the role. They get Tom Hanks to be in that movie. So it's almost like uh, this was like such a it's obviously it wasn't actually like this, but it's like we had such a success with the Stephen King, Darren Bont prison movie. Let's do it again. And let's actually go back and get all the same people we tried to get the last time and do it again and make another great movie. And they did. So it's kind of funny how much overlap there is between this movie and that movie, even though they're very different movies. run it back why not yeah yeah one fun thing in here is the mug shots of the young man on the red's parole office when he gets reviewed 
Uh, it is a young version of Red, basically. That is actually Alfonso Freeman, and he is the son of Morgan Freeman. So uh, that was a fun little thing to do. He has no speaking lines, but uh, he does. It's a fun. What's that? He does have speaking lines. He's the con that's shouting "Fresh fish, fresh fish!" Today we're reeling them in. That is also Alfonso. Oh wow! You found him in another spot then. So I he's did. obviously not that. Wow. Okay. Well, he's a time traveler too. Then <laughs> he's also in seven. <laughs> and uh, this does not pass the Bechdel test. This is one of the most male-intensive <laughs> casts you will possibly find. So if you like strong roles for women. This is not for you. <laughs> um, there are only two women with any speaking lines in this movie, and they are on screen very little. Like one of them's in a grocery store <laughs> dealing with Brooks and just <laughs> just talking to him. Like there's just not many women in this movie. So uh, obviously it's men in prison. So there's not much opportunity for it. But I wonder if I wonder as time goes by if if that'll become a criticism for it, or is that excused given the content? Yeah, it's a male prison film. I. I think that should set all expectations. Perhaps. Yeah. Uh, there was no backstory with Andy and his wife. Again, I like how they left that ambiguous, though. Because he's, he's like, yeah. drunk. He, like, has a gun. He, like, drops bullets there. And you find himself, like, I, did I, I don't think I did this. Like, you know. Right. And they're leaving it fuzzy enough for the audience to act, ask yourself, how am I judging this character? Which is important. Yeah, you you get the little snippets of the wife in the throes of an affair, but that's about it. Yeah. Now, we talked about King having done this, and he sold the rights of his novella for only $5,000 to Frank Darenbont. They developed quite a good friendship, and uh, what they should have, because Darenbont returns to the King well uh, with The Mist and Green Mile, and they've definitely... It's a big part of his career. But they, they developed quite a friendship, and King's... Uh, story he sat on it for five years and he didn't he didn't write it like he had the rights to it but he didn't actually write it because he wanted to increase his skill level as a writer in order to attempt this screenplay which he believed in so strongly and when he did boy he made it count as a writer that's pretty cool and when he he only did it in eight weeks when he finally got around to it well that five thousand dollars is important because rob reiner loved the script too he offered two and a half million for the rights to it but he wanted to direct it as well. So the fact that Darabont wound up, he considered Reiner's offer, but decided, I'm going to take this on myself. He bet big on himself. Yeah. And Stephen King never cashed that $5,000 check we're talking about. Yeah. That's amazing. He uh, he framed it and then sent it back to Frank uh, Darabont as a known scribe saying, in case you ever need bail money, right. Steve. So... There is a kinship between them. They they became pen pals. They didn't meet each other until much later, and they wrote back and forth, and they developed quite a kinship in a in an era where it's not as easy without digital communication and stuff like that. It's kind of a cool story in late late in history to have that happen. But uh, I like that story between these two. I didn't I didn't uncover that when working on the mist. Man, I would love to be pen pals with Stephen King. That would be fascinating. Yeah. Absolutely. He has a really interesting writing technique. He wrote a book that's literally titled On Writing, mm -hmm. and I find his process really fascinating. Tell me about it. I mean, it's a lot. <laughs> but 
anytime that you can step into the mind of someone with the creativity of Stephen King, it's, I am continuously amazed. I think it's one of the things that I really love about film and, and reading for that matter is the wealth of what art human beings are capable of just astounds me sometimes. And I was thinking about it last night as I was finishing a rewatch of this. I was like, you know, this is, this is just amazing creativity. In both of their parts, really, I think both Darren Bond and King, it's credit to them both. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Stephen King was very, very happy with this too. Unlike the shining when we covered that. So, I mean, he was super happy with the mist as well when Darren Bond did it. So, I wonder how much of his praise is just connected to this warm kinship that he has with him. But even at that, you can't deny this would this would make you fast friends to take your content of one of your novellas, again, not one of your bigger literary works, and to turn it into uh, this movie for a long period of time, for a decent span, was the highest rated movie on IMDb. Now, these mm-hmm. things can change, and by the time you're listening to this, it probably is, it may not even be in the moment, but it held that crown for a very long time, and it makes you look very good. So even though he, you say Stephen King and you think Carrie, or you think, you know, Salem's Lot or, uh, you know, It, this has actually resonated and touched far more people when you think about it. Well, he, he really, he describes making his character, he describes his I, I guess i'm trying to paraphrase this but stephen king says he's watching his characters and writing down what they do hmm. so it's he takes the, almost like a third person narration style of writing which is you know how this movie comes out so yeah i mean it's 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 just cool he is such a good writer. I remember watching Graveyard Shift, and it's a bad movie about a monster rat. And it's funny, before the monster rat enters it, there's about 30 minutes of character development. And the movie's actually interesting as far as the characters go, and then, then the monster rat comes in, and we're not having a good time anymore. But I remember <laughs> thinking that, of just thinking, like, this movie, these characters are too good for this movie. And that's that's a kudos to Stephen King and a real bash at the director, whoever that was. And it'll be an angry lamp monster. (laughs) Shots fired. Yeah. um, I mean, they did change the name of this movie because it was confusing uh, actresses because King's novella is Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. That's the name of the novella. And there are a bunch of actresses were applying for the lead part in Shawshank Redemption or trying to get their agents involved to get the part of Rita Hayworth not understanding it's a poster. Yeah, this is not a good movie to land in if you're an actress. So, uh, you know, Andy's wife, Andy's wife doesn't even get any speaking lines, does she? I mean, if they want to pay me to be the poster, that's Fine. I don't I don't know. Did Marilyn Monroe cash a check or sorry, well, not her, but I mean, did Michelle Welsh <laughs> no, cash she... a check for this? Yes. Yes. She said she's a big fan of this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it actually boosted her popularity. So again, other people are benefiting from the popularity of this movie. I liked how they were showing the passage of time in this movie. It's it's subtle. There are wardrobe moments that do it, but it's more so in the posters and his in his jail cell in a world where there's no connection to the outside. Uh, they're reading books and watching films that are actually old for the moment. But I mean, uh, Rita Hayworth, you know, is is a 
fixture on the wall there. And then, uh, you know, they replace her with Marilyn Monroe and they then go to Raquel Welsh. And that shows, you know, that, that passage of time because he's in there for a very long time. I mean, he, he, um, See where I had the years written down. It was almost twenty years. It was nineteen fifty-seven, I think, is when he was intern. Yeah. So, that's really cool how they the director used that obviously to cover the tunnel that he's working on, but more so to also convey a passage of time. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Obviously, we've talked about Darren Bunt. He uh, he had written screenplays and speculation uh, for things like Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream mm-hmm. Warriors, and The Fly 2. <laughs> I, this is this is an ex- unexpected step up in the career for Darren Bont to take on this content. Like you said, he bet on himself, and he made right choices. I mean, we, they go beyond what I discussed earlier, like Brooks' character, for instance. He elaborated in the, in the, in the book, uh, Brooks' minor character who leaves and you know goes to retirement home and dies that's so less profound than what he did with the character he took brooks and he made you really connect to him and they showed you how the walls changed the shape of that man and then he goes out into the real world and he doesn't fit anymore and so much so that he misses prison and takes his own life and what a heavy moment that was in the film but think how much meaning that that darren bond added to the king script it's amazing Mm, yeah i didn't know that i I knew he had, I don't know if I would say a happier ending, but certainly not death by suicide in the novella. I knew it was changed and his role was expanded because that's a friend of Darabont's. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Darabont listed his works of uh, director Frank Capella, including Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and It's a Wonderful Life, and describing them as tall tales. And Darabont liked those movies and said that the Shawshank Redemption feels like a t- more of a tall tale to him than a prison movie, such as A Birdman of Alcatraz, which was another influence that he did have in this, uh, kind of talking like what you were talking about, Fry, of like prison movies. So it is it is kind of a fairy tale story, isn't it? Or not fairy tale, but tall tale. Uh, yeah, I don't think uh, I, th- I don't think you can go fairy tale with this by any tall means. Tall tale, tall tale. Sorry, uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's. Although I will say this: if you read, you know, most of the source material for what we know as fairy tales now, they are pretty dark. That being said, I just they're they, like you know, all due respect to Green Mile, which was excellent in its own right. This movie was a perfect blending of source material and <clears throat> creative input from the director. And that blending has worked very well for Stephen King. Yeah. And not just in this film. It's interesting that the actors don't talk much about the atmosphere on the set. Maria Freeman says that it was it was extremely tense. And mm-hmm. there were a lot of differences between... The actors amongst themselves or the producers and Darren Bont. And it's interesting. Uh, Martin Freeman just calls it very strange and wouldn't go into it much farther in, in an interview. And, um, you know, there's so much positivity of it after the fact. And clearly it's made a big dent on people. But it's interesting. There's a little bit of mystery there. I, 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 I think there's another story to peel back in that that hopefully over time comes out. But uh, I think making a movie is always stressful. I mean, you're especially for a first time director. I mean, so credit to them. It certainly doesn't show in the work. There doesn't seem to be at all. It seems amazingly well put together. So 
whatever they were doing seemed to be working. Awkward and difficult directing on a Stephen King adaptation, you say? Impossible. <laughs> and if you like uh, directors popping into their own movies, Darren Bont was strangely obsessed with people's hands in the movie. He <laughs> he didn't he didn't like the revolver scenes, and so he actually used his own hands in the movie, and he kept telling the actors what to do with their hands. And so uh, the close-ups framing in post-production most notably felt like he could do exactly what he wanted to do and there uh, you know when andy carves his name into the cell wall uh twice in the film those are darren bont's hands so uh darren bont handsy director not in the bad way that later came to light but uh and the more literal i like my hands in the movie yeah that is strange i think of the passion of the christ like the person nailing the spikes into jesus's hands is mel gibson but that was done symbolically that's just a weird thing to obsess over the hands as a director for less symbolic reasons yeah yeah i i think he should be directing will ferrell and talladega nights i don't know what to do with my hands i don't know what to do with my hands just put your hands down i don't know what to do with my hands it's like here back out of the way i'll do this i have got hands it's like um Quentin, is it Quentin Tarantino as the thing for feet? He does. Yeah, I mean, all you need to know about that is from dusk till dawn. Right. I I feel like that's almost infamous at this point. Yeah. I feel like his dream was to have been to work with David Duchovny from Zoolander with uh, the hand model. I have great hands. And a small little biblical reference there. When he opens up the Bible to find Andy's hammer, it was taken out. I like these little moments that Darren Bont uses. It's in Exodus, which, Mm -hmm. you know is greek for departure so uh there's so many good little moments in this and and when you look in the dialogue as you return to this over and over again as i have there's stuff that is not just dumb exposition but is necessary later and reinforces things whether it's the warden talking about the shoes whether it's um you know the rock hammer and how it's being used and you know, small things. Andy's eyes. This is more of a makeup thing, but I'll tell you about it now. Like Andy's eyes get more and more dark throughout the movie, implying that he's like not being beaten down by the years necessarily or age, but he's hammering away at that wall at night. And um, that fatigue is progressively shows through the movie. These are subtle little things that there's a lot of attention to detail. And I got to give Darren Bond credit. That's the director when that's where that stuff comes from. Yeah, I wondered about that as far as sleep schedule. Like, how many hours is he putting in on this thing? Uh, you have a lot of time, in fairness. Yes, yeah, 20 years. Now, uh, this is a pretty movie, cinema, cinematographically, anyway. It is, uh, this is some pretty shots. Uh, this is Roger Deakins, was the director of photography. And he, he is coming out of, it would be 23 years and 12 nominations later that he finally wins... Uh, an Oscar for Blade Runner 2049, but he's got an impressive catalog under his belt, and he does some amazing work here, too. He also gets a guard named after him. Does he? Yeah, there was a guard specifically addressed as Deacons. See, I love this little... That's what I'm talking about. Darren Bond with all these little things. Yeah. Yeah, that happens a lot of... Some member of the cast or some member of the crew winds up in the cast with with their name. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's in, it's interesting when you study the cutscenes in this. Uh, this movie is long, but 
doesn't feel superfluous at all. And honestly, some of the cutscenes just suck you more into their world. Uh, not to, I know Fry is one of those people who says, "Give me more, give me more, give me more." But some of these things are actually pretty cool. Like uh, there's there's a scene where Tommy's wife is visiting him in prison, and uh, you know this is one of those reasons that motivates Tommy to turn his life around. Why he starts to work towards getting his GED, and this is another one of those interesting side characters. We keep we keep turning the page and this is just like Brooks. Tommy is another one of these interesting characters that enriches the story that was pretty small in the novel. Yeah. Him getting his GED was pretty cool where he's just angry about it, throws it away, thinks he's no good going through the, the lessons that are very elementary. Like I, I wrote down, I was kind of laughing. What high school exam is asking what's five, five, times five or define what a noun is but that's where they are that's what it shows them studying so he, well i think that they didn't they mention in the lines like so we went back to the abcs yeah. like and he they, had to start from scratch to build them up because he didn't know what he knows yeah and that wasn't just an expression they're literally starting with the abcs right. there's a there's another scene where red gets sent to the hole for two weeks for not telling him about Andy's escape and not, you know, and he's just laughing at them, which they go for this more tense moment, which is dramatic, but I kind of like that because Andy Red comes out of the hole and they said, how'd you do? And like, he's like, easiest time I ever did in the hole, like kind of like Andy. So um, these characters, my point is, is in the world that they're putting together is just so good. Um, yeah. What do you, what do you think about Darren Bond as a director? Uh, very Stephen King connected uh, Fry. Because we've now, this is our second movie, because he did The Mist as well. Right. Well, Stephen King and I agree on one thing, and that was the ending of The Mist was better than the book. Mm -hmm. Also one of the most horribly depressing endings <laughs> of a movie you could ever, I mean, it is just brutal. So uh, there's that. As far as his other directing stuff, I mean, he does a lot of TV stuff, and it's it's almost like he did this movie... And then just mic dropped, like the sign felt going my, out on a high note. <laughs> my my work is complete now. Obviously, he did do other things. I'm just saying that that this is, you know, this really was an opus. It was. I mean, he comes back and does the Green Mile five years later. He does the Majestic, and then after that, he produces a few movies such as Collateral. He directs the Mist again, and he's pretty much done as a director of movies. I mean, he's I, I like I said, he's kind of a writer up until this point, and so. It's interesting. I, I see the writer qualities in him coming through and directing this movie. This movie is very much about storytelling. And I think that that probably comes from his background as a writer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So this movie, like all Stephen King movies, is set in New England. It's it's in Maine. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I like I, somehow that's a Stephen King ism. I just like geographically setting it in New England all the time. I, I've coming, I'm coming to really like that. Like, it's just a thing that you expect. But uh, Shawshank is obviously a fictional prison. And they, they shot it in the Ohio State Reformatory in Mansfield, Ohio, which was not in good shape. And they, they wanted to shoot inside, but it was in pretty rough shape. So they only used it for exterior shots. And they actually built this jail in a Westinghouse factory. And they just determined it was deep, easier to control by doing it inside. And I got to say, even knowing this, I'm looking at it, they handle, they do a lot with like dark lighting and like how they shoot things, but they did such a good job. It does, having, like I said, walked through the walls of Alcatraz, 
I would never would have known. I thought they were shooting in a historic prison. So excellent work on the set design and particularly the lighting to not give it a dead giveaway. I, uh, I, I think Maine should change its name to, to Maine is for writers. <laughs> like it really does, you know, house a lot of, you know, creative people. It does. Per capita. And lobster too. Yes. Yeah. The fictional Shawshank though is actually mentioned again later in a, in the movie Dolores Claiborne in 95 where like they said uh, the character Kathy Bates character yells at her husband that he'll do time in Shawshank the Stephen King verse coming together that's I don't know that we need that but yes so you don't want Andy crawling through the sewer pipe and and bumping into Pennywise along the way out mm, I could be convinced yes <laughs> it's like we're in dairy oh no <laughs> chad's head cannon is, is is starting to light up now yeah i need all these fictional i need a map that's right and they andy could slip in the line they all float mm. winds up at a hotel a very suspicious mm. hotel yes although they did have uh morgan freeman's cell it was 237 and that's the same as the shining room Perfect. And also the Royal River that, that they, they mention as having like Andy crawl into is mentioned in, in Salem's Lot. So, you know, like you said, this is all connecting and going together in a little Stephen King world. So I think that's fun. I agree. Did you pick up on the sense of time? Because this is a period piece. And I, I don't know why sending me back to this era does things for me, but it does. Does it have that effect on you guys or does it like add to the storytelling component to this, like to have it be in the past? Oh, I absolutely love this, this time frame. Um, usually when movies come out in, in this ballpark and usually to do with crime, um, I'm, you know, jumping on it. I was a big fan of public enemies or the highwaymen on Netflix and, and stuff like that. So this is, this is a lot of fun in terms of an era for movies as far as time passing goes, and this is another makeup piece for you, I thought they did a remarkably subtle and amazing job at slowly aging the characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I didn't think Tim Robbins aged enough, though, because I assume he's going in, what, in his 20s-ish? And by the end, he would have been 48. I certainly look different from... You know, graduating college or getting married at 22 to right now I'm 37. That's only 15 years. Well, I remember I remember thinking during the movie uh, where he's talking to the character about getting his GED and thinking, wow, when did his hair get gray? Like they I think I think they did. I think he's just one of those guys that, you know, you you know, I, I always joke that when I turn 30, I turned 40 <laughs> and, and you just stay there. Like it's, it's like, I felt like it was fast forward and then pause for, you know, 40 years. It's like Paul Rudd. The man just doesn't age. Yeah. He did acquire glasses. I noticed that, but where I noticed it the most was the warden's hairstyles because the yes. warden's mm. hairstyles were changing throughout. It's like, oh, okay. There's more passage of time because the prison uniforms mostly stayed the same. That's a hard thing to do, to be honest with you, for sure. And like you said, the warden is connection to the outside world, so it's much easier to show in him and his boxy 50s haircut. Yes. Yeah, This, I, I don't know if I'm piecing it together now because, again, I really loved Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? But maybe the magic formula for me is prison escapes 
set in like the 40s, 50s, 60s. So if you combine those two things, I'm going to have a good time. I don't know. I, I need more films. So if you want to send in more films that somehow fit this criteria, I, I'm willing to test this hypothesis. Yeah. Yeah. And back to Terrence Marsh, he was the production designer who made these prison sets look so good. That, that was interesting. They also made the connection of the outside world go away. Like they just took like plastic sheeting over the windows in this, in this uh, warehouse and you don't see outside, which is a, an effective move. I mean, you don't want the audience to be connected to the outside world. So again, taking this amazing real life prison set and, and that, that has a subliminal feel to it that you do feel like you're encapsulated in there. And I remember thinking as like, how fortunate is it that Andy is the last cell in the block that he can tunnel out and just not be in somebody else's room? Right. <laughs> you do get a brief shot of the outside from Jake. I thought that was a fun scene where Brooks is setting his raven that he's raised from just being this hurt little bird, hurt little baby, which whatever the, I, I don't know if it was PETA or some animal society complained that it was going to be a live maggot fed to the bird and they wanted only a dead maggot. I mean, really? Oh, for the love. Right. Yeah, they, like, did, they did supervise that, yes. Yeah, yeah, so we had to make sure the maggot was dead prior to feeding it to the, the crow. Yes. The poster was harmed, but not, not the maggot. <laughs> the sewage tunnel sequence, I thought this was funny. Somebody actually said if someone were to immerse yourself into a sewage uh, pipe, the toxic fumes in there would likely not only have you throw up instantly which he did but also likely pass out and you would probably not make it out of there alive so a little bit of a bummer on that to be myth busted so don't actually listen to this podcast and feel influenced to go crawl through a waste pipe for 200 yards 500 500 yards yeah 500 yards yeah uh you're not likely to make it but hey it works for a movie this is the new tiktok challenge climb through 500 yards of sewage. Hey, man, we, we shall be thanking uh, uh, TikTok for the survival of the fittest display. <laughs> oh, milk crate challenge, cinnamon challenge, yes. Now we'll do a sewage challenge. Now, environmentally, I think that it's interesting. Obviously, the jail is a world of darkness and grayness, and there's no green in there, and that's very fitting. But when you go outside of the walls, when red gets out, when red is going to the pastoral scenes out in the farmland to get to where Andy told him to go to that stone wall to find clues for where to go, basically, and to meet him in his little spot and special spot in Mexico. I won't try and pronounce the name of the, the, his happy place uh, in Mexico that he alluded to. Say what now? Thank you. Which they shot that in an amazing way too. So blue. They went to St. Croix of the Virgin Islands to shoot that and the farmlands, it's just ethereal. Like to watch Morgan Freeman get out of this gloomy world and then how bright the outside world seems. Uh, it didn't see that way for Brooks. Uh, obviously, his experience was different, but that was such a well represented visual style. The music and the colors really reinforce the uplifting sense of there. And so it's just like a, your brain's just lighting up with all of the like. You know, this movie's about hope. Your brain's just like being rewarded centrally through all of this. Rest in peace to the Shawshank tree. We lost it in 2016. 
Oh no, I didn't know that. Yeah, it was struck by lightning and and made it through that, but yeah, it's gone now. I did think to myself, wouldn't it be inconvenient to give somebody directions based on a tree? Because evidently (sighs) they run the risk of the tree not being there. This was essentially the Elder Scrolls Morrowind. Back before they had quests that just pointed you with little markers, they'd say, go to the rock past this tree. So, right. Back in my day. Oh, you were killed by a mud crab. <laughs> Cliff racers. Freeman actually recorded all of this in an Iowa recording studio for his narration in 40 minutes. However, there was a minor issue and hiss on the track that just bothered the sound engineers in uh, Los Angeles. They were unable to eradicate, so they had him re-record the whole proper studio and do it. And it took three weeks the next time around. And I think... It was fine the first time. They just wanted to hear Morgan Freeman talk for three weeks straight. Just like, ah, oh, this is good. Andy Dufresne. Smooth, smooth like butter. Well, they made him throw a baseball for nine hours in that opening scene. So he, he shows up in a sling the next day. I think it's yeah, funny. Like, like he was just agreeably doing it without, like, complaining. But you're right. He showed up the next day and was like, what's this sling? Uh, yeah, well, you know, make me throw a ball for nine hours. This is what will happen. <laughs> we'll have that. It's like that's excessive even for a professional. Right. Yeah, this. Where was the st- Screen Actors Guild? Like, where where was his union rep to step in and say, you know what? After three to four hours, you got the shot. Leave it alone. You know, I have wondered when you hear stories about this, like nine hours of prison yard shooting. And it makes you sit there and go, how did they ever get done? This is a two hour and 45 minute movie. Clearly they did. Clearly not every shot took that long. But it does make you wonder the when a, when a, when a director, rightfully so, wants something and they're very choosy about it. I, I won't fault them for that as, a, as somebody who's in a creative field of architecture. Like when you want something, you want something. And that I understand that. So that, that hang up. But you do wonder... How do you ever get a movie made when you go at it at that rate? And the answer is obviously you have to pick and choose your battles. But uh, it makes me wonder, what was the battle that day? Like, was he really walking around the prison yard and having everybody stand in such a way? Uh, I don't know. It's interesting. And I wish I, had a, I wish I had a behind the scenes of like him trying to tell people, no, do this with your hands. <laughs> <laughs> no, not jazz hands. That's not right. Doesn't work. That's not right. Music. Also, another part of this is very inspiring. Brian, did you like the music here? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 pretty classical. So, I mean, it's it's appropriate for the film that they were making. Did you like the renegade scene where Andy uh, closes, locks the door and blasts out some uh, some uh, Mozart, the marriage of, of Figaro uh, over the entire prison yard to uh, to the everybody in a rebellious moment? I still don't know what those two women were singing about, but <laughs> Tim Robbins Im- improvised the cranking it up as they're banging on on the window. So yeah, that that was cool. That just that was a great shot where everyone, including the guards, just froze in place to listen to the speakers. Yeah, yeah. yep. I think the music is probably very potent at the escape as well. What an what a high point moment and the music goes a long way to reemphasize that moment too so in the early going they set the mood well with the sound and the soundtrack again going to court the heaviness of the situation that is falling upon andy i i gotta give it credit this 
I, I've watched it a lot of times, but uh, it has enabled me to sit there and go like, ah, man, every time they make the right call and every time it just elevates the mood through every little piece, whether it be, whether it be the lighting or in this case, the music, it's just, it's very, very good when they did that. Uh, I've said it didn't win at least one Oscar. Like, I just feel like the, I feel like at the end of that Oscar season, they just needed to be like, yeah, we didn't pick you for anything, but you just can have one because you deserve one. This is a better movie than Forrest Gump. I mean, I'm just going to put uh, it out there. Sure. Hot take? I don't know. Is that, I don't know. They're both great. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, 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 think that's, I think that's easily just one of those things you can say without much fear of, of recrimination. Okay. It's All not right. like you. It's not like you bring up, you know, something really bad like Spider-Man Three. <laughs> They're two really great movies, so that is kind of like somebody sitting there and being like, you know, I think the Who are better than the Rolling Stones. It's like we need clarification. You're talking about Forrest Gump, not Spider-Man Three, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yes. You know, yes. for sure, not Spider-Man Three. No. All right. I Thank was you. really winding up my ridicule, man. I was right? like, "Ooh, wait till he stops talking." Yes. No, no, no. I'm I couldn't sorry. let I, this I, continue. I was stuck on the Forrest Gump comparison. Sorry. No. <laughs> yes. The proper nouns are important, so we're not elevating Spider-Man Three. You stay in the garbage where you belong. <laughs> I, I I feel like this is not the first time we have drugged Spider-Man Three through the garbage but um i do think that it needs to be the standard for what we mean in terms of bad movie from now on so so uh just so you you know the audience knows spider-man 3 is about as low as you can go i feel like morbius will soon set that scale we will be on a scale of is it morbius I, I, I got to tell you that uh, everything I've heard has been all bad, which was all good for me. I've <laughs> literally just been, I've just been sitting back going, good, good. I, I, I truly like Jared Leto failing at every you do. opportunity. You do. I, I, I relish it. It's, it's, uh, Russ, it is, it is, it's, it's Brooklyn Nets level. Like just, just enjoying that failure is, God, it's got legs. We have made so many people mad within the span of like 30 to 40 seconds. <laughs> Fry's just taken out Jared Leto, everyone that's a and the Brooklyn Nets, Nets fan. Yes. The, the 12 people that like Spider-Man three. I so, feel like if, if I were a Brooklyn, if I were a Brooklyn Nets fan right now, take comfort in the fact that I probably feel the way you do, just not why you do i don't i don't know that this stays because we could be listening to this in five years and they might have three championships between now and then so i won't uh i won't i won't go too deep into it but i'm with you every bit of the way for sure um but in 1994 how do you like these selections at a smaller class of best picture forrest gump shawshank redemption pulp fiction four weddings and a funeral and quiz show to know that you know to be uh to be Robert Redford and had to object to quiz show, you got to know you're not winning when you go up against those movies. I have no idea what that movie is. That's all. That's my point. <laughs> like, but that's still a much better class than what we've seen recently get nominated. Like, my goodness, listen to the the top three. Let's ignore a quiz show versus I, I don't know the four very strong movies. Yes, the, the past several years it's like okay there's one obvious winner and then it's just eh. we've been in a pandemic it's it's gotten pretty bad though i i'll i'll admit that uh 
that this probably would have been one of the dullest Oscars ever, if not for a certain slap to the face. <laughs> well, I can't wait to talk about that in ten years. That's going to be great. Yes. We have to let that we have to let that marinate and let Chris Rock's face heal before we can come back to that, though. Yes. Uh, do you guys want to hand on some awards? Love to. Yeah, let's do it. All right, Brian, who's your MVP? Uh, I got to go with Morgan Freeman on this, and or, actually, I'm just going to go say Morgan Freeman's voice. <laughs> His very vocal specific. cords. Yes, Morgan Freeman's vocal cords. I like it. That's a great choice, Chad. How about you? I have a hard and fast rule of if everything goes right, I have to credit the director. I think it's got to be Darabont for me. I. There was so much right with this movie that uh, that's got to be a credit to him. I came in thinking it was it had to be Morgan Freeman because of his amazing performance. But the more I studied this, like you said, Chad, you go, wow, Darren Bond elevated this. He wrote it. He directed it. This is his baby. He made he made it happen. And he he even honed his own skills, knowing that he needed to improve his writing game to be able to do this and uh, could be a good way to say i'm a procrastinator i'm not sure but uh no but darren bont he's my pick too this movie is just a master like masterfully made movie it's great uh supporting actor fry i i feel like um i've gosh i mean can you i can't see tim robbins because he's not really supporting no he's lead guy um i you can pick I mean, Freeman again, I guess. I, I, yeah, he is, he is I, I just support. You just did it. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it Freeman squared. Uh, actually, no, my MVP was Freeman's voice. Uh, so my re, uh, or my uh, supporting is gonna be Morgan Freeman's body. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Okay. It, the, yeah. the rest, of, the rest of Morgan Freeman. I like it. That's a that's first ever done. I like how you did that. So, Chad, best supporting. I, I don't know if I can get get past we now have a corporeal award. <laughs> yeah. I yeah, Morgan Freeman seems like the obvious choice, so I'm gonna go away from that. I'm gonna go with Clancy Brown, the Kurgan. He's he's mm. an awful villain and I love to hate him. Yeah. It's a great choice. I'm gonna Freeman's so good in this movie. It's like the obvious pick to like say because I mean I think it's one of the best supporting performances of all time. So mm-hmm. I'm, he is my pick, but just for variety's sake to inject, because some other people did some amazing work on this. I think Bob Gunton is a very good antagonist as the warden, and he is a big part of the success of this too. So he gets lost by Freeman's monster performance. I'll just give a nod to Bob Gunton, but okay. obviously it is Freeman. <laughs> I, I like having the two villains. Now, Hidden Jim, if you had to pick a Hidden Jim, who would it be? Brian. See, I, w- I would go Clancy Brown on this one uh, for, for reasons already mentioned. And then also what he you know goes on to do after this movie. He's he is definitely one of those people that it's it's really fun to be like, ah, oh, it's that guy. It is that and, guy. You know? Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I mean, Starship Troopers. Can we can I go there? Just, <laughs> you know, this, you this, could. you yeah. know, I like Dude, him on the fl- you get I, like, me. I like him on the flash. Yeah. The so, yeah. So, yeah, it's uh yeah, it's a win. Chad, Hidden Gem. I went with Brian Libby, who plays Floyd. Floyd really only has like one or two speaking lines, but every time he does, it's just this dry, hilarious wit. And I really enjoyed his character. 
Yeah, he's good. I like all the inmates in there with him for sure. Yeah. Uh, my hidden gem is going to be Frank Medrano. He is the fat guy who has a tough time on the first night. It's through his performance that really sets the tone for how terrible of a place the Shawshank is. And you, he cries like he's whimpering and it's, you see him like literally calling out for his mother and it's not at all funny. It's not at all funny. And it's, it's, it's like soberingly hard to like, and he's on screen for a very small amount of time, but you know, I got to say that, uh, it, it leaves an impact with you. And, uh, if the court scene didn't like have your spine go straight, this did. Yeah, yeah, that was a powerful scene. Recast. If you had to recast somebody, gonna be hard to do. But if you had to put somebody else in their place, who would it be, Brian? I think I would. It doesn't really. I I don't have a specific inmate in mind, but in their group, for some reason, I just kept thinking. They need one guy that you got to wonder, like, wait, why is that guy there? And my first thought was someone like Michael Caine or Christopher Lloyd or somebody that's just like, oh, you know, that's that's a little off the wall. And you're just dying to know the entire time what they did, but they never tell you. Well, Christopher Lloyd sounds perfect to do exactly that. That's for yeah. sure. Right? Yeah, right. I like, that. I like that pick. So you just want to add Christopher Lloyd in there. I like how you, yeah, sidestep, yeah, I like just... how you sidestep the replacement uh, process in this. I wish I had taken after you. But, uh, Chad, <laughs> if you had to recast somebody, who would it be? I love the entire cast. This was a really tough decision. But I went after Boggs, who's the lead sister. Mm. He's the leader of the group. And I think I want Sean Penn in that role. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, Ooh, that's really that, good. That's good. Yeah, I, I like that. I might like that. So uh, we talked about it here, and Tim Robbins is awesome, but I do kind of wonder, what would it be like with Tom Hanks in the role? Now, obviously, I wouldn't take Tom Hanks out of the role of Forrest Gump, but I can't help but think. What would this movie have been like with Tom Hanks? Certainly would have made more money. Yeah. I, I, I feel like over the course of our analysis of this film, we have really shortchanged Tim Robbins. So please let it be known. I think he did a wonderful job on this film. Oh, 100%. I, 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 yeah, I don't, uh, I don't want it ever to be said that we were down on Tim Robbins. Nah, that's right. That's fair. I just, yeah, I, I had a hard time. Quite frankly, this was one of the hardest recastings I've ever done because I liked everybody so much, Tim Robbins included. So... I took the low-hanging fruit of, like, we tried to cast Tom Hanks, so I was sitting there going, like, what would that be like? That would be good, too. So, uh, versus, like, uh, I, can't t- I, I can't replace Brooks. He's, he's amazing. I can't, replace, I can't replace Morgan Freeman. He's, like, that's, that's a legendary performance. And so I just had a really tough time. I even, mm. tried, like, I even tried, like, non-speaking roles. It's just like, uh, I don't know. That's pretty good, too. <laughs> Brad Pitt was up for the Tommy part, but he wound up doing an interview with a vampire. Take him. Yeah, Brad Pitt would be good for that. I like the guy who played Tommy, though, too. I do, too. too. (laughs) He's so mischievous in the most wonderful way. Like, they said that everybody loved him right away. And, uh, you know, that actor, uh, Gil Gil Bellows, he he nailed it. Yeah. Something about him. He brought so much energy. Like, he was was channeling Henry Winkler right there. How did he not get more work out of this? I, I, I thought for a small role, he had a big impact. And yeah. he should have gotten some more good work off of this. Agreed. His agent will be contacting us. Yeah. 
you're welcome to come on the show, Gil. Yes. Best shot, Brian. I think I'm going to go with the execution. Mm, yeah. Uh, with Tommy, you mean? Was that was that was that yeah. two on the nose? Yeah. I, I, is that a pun? Like, are you like like it's 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 actually good cinema cinematography. Is that where you're going with that? It it, it is it is. But I I was yeah I was going for the joke there. Yes. Way way to ruin that one, Russell. Right. <laughs> but. I was sitting there going like it is a dramatic moment. There's a lot of darkness around it, the no, spotlight. It, and the sh- it you know. is. It it is, and it is a compelling shot. So I'm gonna. I that is my answer. But yeah, I was I was definitely going for the the on the nose. I'm with you, Fry. That was mine too. I when the warden emerges out of the shadows to meet Tommy, and he gives him that little bit of cigarette, and then puts it out. Yeah, that entire thing. You know what's going to happen. At least. First time viewing this, I was like, yep, Tommy's gone. You're dead. Yep. This goes to show you how strong the movie is, though, for cinematography, because like, I had like five or six of these that just I had a hard time grappling with. But the one that is kind of the obvious one is when Andy emerges out of the tunnel mm-hmm. of poop, raises his hands mm-hmm. in the air, into the sky, the rain and thunder and lightning are all crashing around him, and it goes on a great smooth crane shot that goes up high in the air. Music's playing. I mean, my goodness, what an elevated moment. But it's hard not to... All, I mean, at the same time, like the tree, like as, as as Red's character is approaching the tree along that stone wall. My goodness. Great sight work. Good lighting. So good. And who could even forget the moment like when the warden sticks his finger through Raquel Welsh's poster and then tears it off the wall. And then like there's like a face of utter disbelief. Like, I mean, when you say Shawshank, it's hard not to think of that moment. And uh, and even when you first come to Shawshank, the helicopter shot that goes over the Ohio prison is so good. I mean, it, it's just dripping in good cinematography. So it's a very pretty movie. And you guys picked another good one as well. So it's all good. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty movie. Best scene, Brian. I'm going to go with the sequence of Red being turned loose back into the world i know that's probably a fairly long choice but i do like the parallels that they drew with brooks and then how they culminated on maybe the same thing would have happened had he not met andy dufresne and i feel like that's the you know the overriding point of this movie is you know look at how many lives even in incarceration, wrongly incarcerated, this man touched. Oh man, when they show the stool and the knife comes out with red, you know yeah. he's gonna make it, but you your heart stops for a moment. Like, no. Oh, the first time I watched that I was like, oh no, 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 no. Yeah, I yeah. knew with Brooks when he brought out the stool, I'm like, well, this ends poorly. And then right. then they go back to it. For sure. Great, yeah, great choice though, Brian. Chad, best scene. I think for me, it's Andy talking about where he'll go once he's free. And he just has this beautiful dream and it's very specific. And it's so true to the hope of Andy's character that he never loses sight of this. And Red and his character, he's telling Andy, you shouldn't dream like that. And he's just lost that hope. He's part of the system. It actually shakes him up. Yeah. Like it reminds him of what he has long since lost. And oh, yeah. and he's on route to becoming what Brooks is. He's en route to becoming institutionalized. That's a very powerful scene that you picked 
it's it's a good one. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andy, in a way, saved him through that. So yeah. My best scene is going to be when Morgan Freeman explains how Andy escaped. That was fun. Prison Break movies are always fun. This you don't think of this movie as being a a good old romp or a fun time or whatever, but I'll be honest with you, you can't just especially upon rewatch, you can't just not have a huge grin on your face watching Andy chip away at the stones and put them in his pocket and drop them out of his pocket and all the little details that they go into of how this came to be, switching the shoes out and you know just you know it's just so good at having this huge payoff. And it's very rewarding. You could have even ended the movie there. I'm glad they didn't. How they ended the movie is amazing. Uh, but this is a very fun moment in the movie. And I just, uh, to me, it's one of those things of just like, uh, I will end up, like, I will end up watching so much of this movie to get to this point. And at that point, you just stay in there. So, like, when I watch this again for the show, I told Chad, I even texted him, I said, I went down, to, like, I said, I'm going to have to watch this in, like, two or three sittings. And, I just it was late and I started it at like eleven o'clock and nope I just just kept running it all into the I, I stayed up way too late one night just because it, it it hooked me, so. You know what? That's something I was thinking about with this movie last night. Is it puts you down? And Brian said the word heavy a lot for this podcast, and I I hate that my picks keep getting that word injected. But you know it is a heavy movie, but it it doesn't dwell there. It, no, it doesn't. It it always gives you like a little breadcrumb or something of leading you back to a fun moment. And then you go back down, but it's more hills and valleys versus just kicking you and then you're down for an hour and a half before finally releasing everything. So I think I really appreciated scenes like you're talking about where it restores your happiness. It restores a little bit of we've we've just had suicide We've had Brooks's death, and now we have Andy's escape. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think, the, and really, I think that that's what kind of, you know, nails this movie. The overriding point of the movie is, you know, not losing hope. Yeah. And I, I even one of the funny little moments of joy is just talking about little funny moments of joy when Andy opens up his audio library and uh, one of his fellow inmates who wants to hear Hank Williams finally gets to he's sitting there with headphones <laughs> on just truly like this is one of the best moments he's going to have his entire moment of prison low bar low low bar set but uh, you're getting a little bit of Hank Williams set, set this guy up and there's moments of like you said Chad little moments of joy throughout and I'm glad you put it that way peaks and valleys. But this is this is the top of the mountain when he gets out. It's just so so rewarding to watch the the conspiracy the come un like unraveled and watch Andy collect all the money from all the bank accounts, wipe them out, and the warden hung him out to dry, and he hung the warden back out to dry in turn. And it feels very good to watch him pull the wool over their eyes and to be on top of this whole game because he is a smart dude, and it shows how smart Andy is. So it's very rewarding. It made the energy in his scene with Morgan Freeman in the library where he's talking to him through the bookshelf about what he was doing and how he was getting this money in the fake person. It's like he's just very excited about how clever he's been. And by the time he escaped, it's like, oh, oh, he assumed that person's identity. So I was confused a little bit. It's like, is he just thrilled about how happy and useful he's being? But no, it was all part of his plan. So that made a lot more sense for me. I think he actually would have just been exonerated and gone out and then kept his word and not ratted out the warden and done exactly what he said he was going to do. 
but then the warden had to be a jerk about it. Uh, that's putting it lightly. <laughs> and and yeah, he came back and he decided to, I think, I think Red put it really well when he said, Andy decided he wasn't going to stay anymore. And that's exactly what he did. He decided he was going to leave. So he left on his own terms. Right on. Best wardrobe or makeup moment. A lot of prison uniforms here, but uh, there's there's more to it than that. Brian, what about you? I think I'm going to stick with kind of what I brought up earlier. I, I do think that they made enough subtle changes throughout in, in a variety of different places to show that time has passed. And the subtlety, I, you know, I think is the, the overarching point I'm trying to make. This is a very subtle movie. And the number of subtleties when added up just make for a much more profound statement. Yeah. And you can see how younger Tommy is like coming in, like, and you can see how he's younger than the other inmates. They take to him, but like, he's got that early sixties, late fifties kind of rock and roll has hit me kind of vibe. Like Elvis has touched his life. Whereas the other guys are definitely pre Elvis and red is like way pre that, whatever that was. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Chad, what about you? I just like Morgan Freeman's suit after he's paroled and he's riding the bus to go see Andy. He's got the hat. It's a great ensemble. I I enjoyed that. It's long overdue dignity. That suit, that suit feels very dignified on him. I agree. There's something very rewarding about it. And uh, I'm uh, nobody picked big floppy hats for the prison. I'm I'm disappointed, but um, (laughs) (laughs) mine's going to be the warden opening up his box of shoes and finding Andy's, probably oversized ratty brown shoes and they're and looking up like oh no <laughs> like <laughs> um bob gunton's face is prior to what's selling this but uh and then they 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 switch over to uh, a shot of andy's feet having really bright shiny black shoes when morgan Freeman's just like nobody noticed him having those shoes how often do you look at a man's shoes i was just like i feel like that would stand out a lot <laughs> right yeah i i look at people's shoes constantly yeah, in fact, they tell you, like, if you have to build out a wardrobe, like, if they, you know, if you're handed $500 to build out a wardrobe, it's okay to spend, like, two-thirds of it on the shoes. So, the shoes are big. I don't know. Hey, there you go. The shoes make the man. There they go, yeah. Uh, Alan Edmonds, uh, if you want to endorse the show, we'll take it, so. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, change one thing. Brian. I think that, and this is uh, this is going to be another cop-out, just fair warning. I think that I just want to applaud the changes that were made to the story to make the movie and, and the courage it takes to, to change the source material, especially from an author as prolific as Stephen King. That's a very gentle change. One thing, Brian. Yes. (laughs) But Uh, I mean, there's boldness as the first time director saying, I'm going to go change Stephen King. Right. And then so successfully, I, it just, that, that's one of the, there's so many things to like about this movie. There's so many things to gush about this movie. So, you know, it's, it's rough to go in and be like, I'm going to give you what I think should be changed when the boldness that has already been implemented on it and to such a successful level, it just seems like arrogant to, to change something. It is a bit of a, a punt on your part, but I, I'm not going to help Russell in this situation either. Like, my initial response was, I don't want to. I don't want to change a darn thing. Now, I will I will inject my wife's change one thing, because she sat down and watched this with me. She'd never seen it. And she would like less suicide in this movie. 
So I guess I'll go with like the Less cop. suicide. Oh. Yeah, I, th- when they go to the well twice, I think the second time was put what put her over the edge. So maybe have the cop shoot the warden instead of him. The warden committing himself. suicide is such a cowardice kind of move. He can't deal with the world that he has been inflicting on people. Ah, it's so poetic. I can't. I, oh, I understand. That, that hurts I, me. That hurts I, me. <laughs> I think she was still rattled from the Brooks suicide. Well, the Brooks one is a very different kind of suicide. Yeah. That, one, just that one's rattling. Yeah. Couldn't handle it a second time. Uh, you know, with my depression and things like that, my history, it's something that sticks in her mind of a concern. So when she sees that in movies, especially multiple times, it's hard for her to take. It's and a hard one with the chair tipping. Yep. Like, yeah, I hear you. It's it's a hard moment for sure. So I don't want to change a darn thing, but that's what my yeah. way of would change. Yeah, uh, I mine's a bit of a cop out as well. Stephen King actually makes a lot of cameos in his movies and he just pops into little parts. He's not quite Stan Lee level of prolific, but he comes in a lot of his movies. I feel like Stephen King just needs to be in this movie somewhere. Maybe he's the judge who sentences Andy to two life terms in prison, one for each victim. So... Maybe that's too heavy of a role for him. That guy is pretty good, by the way. So I don't, here I am. Can't I, Once again, I can't recast literally anybody in this movie. It hurts me. Um, <laughs> so uh, I'm just going to do Brian's other thing. of just like, get Stephen King in there. Make him one of the inmates that just pops up in the background. Yeah. Like, in, yeah. like, I've been here longer than anybody except for that guy. <laughs> like, right. Well, maybe he's a member of the baseball team, the guard baseball team. Yeah. Mm. I, you know, yeah. Or maybe he's one of the guys getting his taxes, like, straightened up. And like, he's like, I yeah. didn't realize I had that much money. Thanks. Yeah. This is our worst change one thing probably of all time. I, oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's hard when you when you have a movie this good, like you you encroach on the sacrosanct things that you come up with to, to make the show interesting because <laughs> you're like, you're like, ah, well, not every movie has that, you know? Instead of yeah. eating Rice Krispies, I wish you were eating Cheerios. That's about as bold as I'll go. <laughs> right? They really needed more um, worms in their food scenes. Right. Use a live worm. <laughs> there you go. That is my change one thing. You know yeah, what? Yeah. You, you, you eat the live worm. Okay. Live worm. Okay. We, we found something we can all agree on then. Yes. Animal safety people, maggots don't count. Yeah. We upset some people just now, by the way. <laughs> why not why it's not? a little worm best quote right probably that's the beauty of music they can't take it from you mm. yeah that's a great one yeah. yeah just 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 because i agree with that line so thoroughly you know it just it that that's it's not it's not at all impactful to the movie really outside of the fact that it it further illustrates tim robbins's point of view and mindset and positivity well, yeah the only way he survives solitary and there's zero chance i would survive two months of solitary mm. it would be uh yeah yeah that would be rough no doubt about it and to come out of there and say like it was it was easy that was the first time it wasn't the two-month run after right. the two-month run not even he was like no nah, that was hard that sucked <laughs> yeah. my best oh, sorry chad best quote on the outside i was an honest man straight as an arrow I had to come to prison to be a crook. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And I should find another one because that was mine too. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, man. <laughs> no, it's all right. I, I loved that line. It just, uh, that was such a funny thing when like uh, he was being menacing and enjoying his uh, 
his embezzlement scheme and uh yeah his judgment cometh and right soon well and i'll toss this out there you cannot say the word shawshank redemption to me without the very first thing that pops into my head is morgan freeman saying andy Andy dufresne Dufresne. (laughs) that's literally like it's it is the first primary thing that creeps into my head every time this movie comes up see i thought for sure yours would be something out of red's parole speech which is almost office space-esque of him being interviewed by this board and he's just like go ahead i don't give a we're gonna avoid some of the words saying but you know it's red just saying i don't care you you have no power over me anymore it's uh it's 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 not that i'm lazy it's that i just don't care right (laughs) there are so many great lines that morgan freeman has in this movie but uh i actually think this one kind of indirectly goes to red uh, as andy's reading it and he says i guess it comes down to a simple choice really get busy living or get busy dying and and it's not not sitting there in your pity and you know it reinforces for that message for Brooks, it was defeating, but for Andy, it was to push through and to get busy living and to get back to living and to take matters into his own hands. So whenever something bad happens, the notion to push through, to perceive and not, not to wallow in your self-pity and your despair, um, that, that's an actual powerful message there. So I think, I'll, I think I'll go with that one. However, Chad, I like your choice there too. That's fair. All right. So we've come to that time. On a five-star scale with half-star intervals, Brian, what would you rate The Shawshank Redemption from 1994? This year is going to be a nightmare for movie rankings. I gave this one <laughs> five stars. Yep. The year-end show is going to have some tough, stiff competition. It's yeah, good. it's it. there's going to be a train wreck for one through five. I mean, it's going to be a pile-up that... I, I, uh, yeah. Yeah. And it's going to be a pile up at the bottom, too. It's like it's an incredibly <laughs> divided year. Yeah, we covered things like Deep Rising and Leprechaun, too. So in Valentine's Day. So. How dare hey, you? What sir? is wrong with Leprechaun? Right. Yeah. Russell continues being wrong and he's like tripling down on this. Wow. Well, it is not in the category of this movie, I don't think. But Chad, what about you on a five star scale? What is this movie for you? I went five stars and it was just a movie that I said what have i done first and foremost when i picked this as a dealer's choice it's like oh what what have i done because i i don't try and just pick like okay this is an amazing movie i just heard a lot about it and it was one i hadn't seen but by the end of it i was thinking this is a perfect movie this is a perfect movie and i think it makes my top 10 i I don't even want to sort out where it falls in my top 10, but I could guarantee you this is in my top 10 of all time. And I haven't been hit like that since 12 Angry Men. Uh, 12 Angry Men was another movie that I just watched and said, this is cinematic perfection. I love it. It pleases me greatly that you think that. <laughs> like, it, I, I, can't, I can't tell you how much I love spreading that movie around. Yeah, to have have that instant reaction because a lot of times it takes some build up for me to get a movie up there in the list but it's just rare that upon first watch i'm like nope you belong here 
Yeah, mm-hmm. it makes me so happy to hear that. I, I was trying not to overbuild it because anytime this goes to all the listeners, anytime you really love a movie, I, I try not to shove it down anybody's throat and be like, "This is the best movie ever." Or like, you know, or like, <laughs> "I love this movie. You're going to love it." Like, you're making so many assumptions that they're they feel the same way as you. So I try to just be like, "I really did enjoy this movie, and I hope you like it too." Or something is the best I can like. But um, I was sitting there like, I was like, oh, this is Chad's first time. Yay. And so um, the fact that you connected with it so quickly makes me really happy because I, this is probably the least surprising rating of all of the show. I've been gushing about it and it's, it's a five-star movie for me. And I don't have every movie in front of me. I know Alien and 12 Angry Men and some other great movies have been out there, Wizard of Oz and stuff like that. But it's very possible this might be my favorite movie that we've covered at 162 movies into Retro Movie Roundtable. So a very enthusiastic five-star rating. Awesome. Awesome. Excellent. So it's going to be a little bit of a come down. I don't know how we're going to do this next week, but we have a good pack of three movies for next week. Chad, do you want to help me pick a movie for next week? Yeah, absolutely. Option one, Dog Day Afternoon from 1975. Three amateur bank robbers plan to hold up a bank a simple, nice robbery, walk in and take the money and run. Unfortunately, the supposedly uncomplicated heist suddenly becomes a bizarre nightmare as everything that could go wrong does. Option two, Brick from 2005. A teenage loner pushes his way into the underworld of a high school crime ring to investigate the disappearance of his ex-girlfriend. Option three, the informant with an explanation mark in the title from 2009. The U.S. government decides to go after an agro-business giant with a price-fixing accusation based on the evidence submitted by their star witness, Vice President-turned-informant Mark Whitaker. Chad, what's it going to be? I'm going to continue on this train of movies I've never seen and go with Dog Day Afternoon. All right. All right. So thank you, all the Lords, Ladies, and Knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We appreciate you. We want to invite you to reach out to us because we want to hear from you. So subscribe and rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. Give us a like on Facebook. Please engage with us. We always love to hear from you, the listeners. If we're doing a good job, let us know. Those reviews and ratings help other people find the show. They help us promote what we're doing. And it takes very little time on your part. And uh, we hope that that's something you can do to help us out. So it means an awful lot to us. Follow the show on Twitter at, at movie underscore retro and email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com if you want to go more in depth or if you want to be on the show. Producing and providing this podcast is fun, but not free. So we invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash retromovieroundtable. Any contributions you make will are much appreciated and will go towards making the show better for you, the listeners. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Brian? I'm tired, boss. Tired of being on the road, lonely as a sparrow in the rain. <laughs>